The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But we want to get started into the message tonight, and we're glad to be back to our study of church history. And we rely on Christ's promise that the church would continue to preach the gospel until, uh, well, in every century until he comes again to take his people out of the world. And that's certainly the hope of the church. As much as we like being the church and as much as we like preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching the Bible, it's a wonderful thing to do. But as much as we like all of that, I'm going to be glad when the day comes that preaching is going to be over uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, we're waiting for Christ to return to the world when he takes the church away. And then when that happens, uh, preachers will have preached themselves out of a job. And I think that we ought to remember that that's the plan. That's what we're trying to do. Jesus said, go into the world and preach the gospel. He said to disciple people. He said to baptize them. And that's what we want to do. We want to keep on preaching the gospel of Christ until the end of the world, as it says in Matthew chapter 28. And the word world there means uh, the age, the end of the age, the end of the church age. We're going to keep preaching the gospel until then. And as far as I'm concerned, the end of the church age can't come too soon. I said we love being the church, but it can't. the end of it can't come too soon. Well, the time of Christ's absence from the world has really been a troublesome time. Uh, Christ promised that uh, preachers of the gospel would be hated. He said that the gospel itself would be hated. Uh, Christians are going to have a very difficult time in this world. And uh, we still have to keep preaching despite all of that kind of opposition. And the most colossal waste of time, do you know what the worst waste of time is? I think the worst waste of time, and we could probably think of a lot of things because people can waste time, but the worst for religious people is to be in a church that does not preach the truth. That is the worst waste of time there is because despite all the best efforts that you put into this, there is nobody that's going to be changed, nobody that's going to be saved without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we don't want to do is waste time. We want to occupy our time well by preaching the gospel, giving that to people until Christ returns. Well, last month I had a wonderful opportunity to do some research on churches in the Philippines. And I became interested in this because of the uh, church that we are helping uh, in, the, in the Philippines that, that lost their church during the typhoon last year. And uh, I started doing a little bit of research on, on Filipino churches and what the doctrines were in that part of the world. And as I was looking into this, I came across the ministry of a man by the name of Dr. Benny Abonte. And I'd heard of him before, but I really didn't know very much about his ministry. But he pastors the largest Baptist church in the Philippines. There are about 6,000 members of that church. And uh, there are many, many more in satellite churches that uh, that, uh, that particular church has started. And this particular man, Dr. Abonte, was impressed with the, with the need to have indigent, uh, indigenous Filipino pastors because he, because he thought that the Filipinos were being much too, uh, far too much influenced by foreign missionaries. 
Now you think, well, you can, you can have your own opinion whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I would have to agree with his thinking that uh, many of the things that are exported here as far as religion is concerned, uh, there are things that are very, very weak in doctrine. Uh, of course, we do know that one of the uh, worst influences across the world right now, the fastest growing influence in, in churches is the charismatic movement. So the United States have been, has been exporting a lot of bad theology, and Dr. Benny Abante thought that Americans were being too, or that Filipinos were be, being too dependent upon uh, American missionaries. And so as I was looking into the doctrines of their church and what they taught, I was very surprised, and maybe not so much surprised, but very thankful to find out that uh, that church teaches almost exactly right down the line the beliefs of Berean Baptist Church. And uh, a message that I listened to of his was a very long sermon, and you think my sermons are long. Uh, this one was about an hour and a half, and I, and I think that's pretty normal. And he was preaching for about an hour and a half on the New Testament church. And in that message, he was given a great history of Baptist, and he talked about the core doctrines of the Baptist faith. And, and I find that he was going right down the line with the very things that we've talked about in this series. So I was happy to find out that that particular church over there was, was right down the line with Berean Baptist. And as I was looking at that and thinking about that, I, I sent a letter to uh, Oscar Bouquets, the pastor of the church that we're helping there in the Philippines, and I asked him, I said, are you in agreement with these doctrines? Now, maybe that's something that I should have asked in the first place, but uh, on, the, on the day that I decided that we uh, should help that, that church, the Lord just impressed me with the burden at that particular time, and I felt like that was the thing to do, and I didn't really ask a lot of questions. So I, I followed up with him on that and asked him, uh, whether he agreed with Dr. Benny Abante, and he said, I, he said, I can't find any reason to disagree with anything that he said. And he said, I've listened to uh, your church and listened to sermons online that you give, and he said, I find myself in agreement with what you say. I can't find anything that I disagree with. And I, and I thought that was just a, a wonderful thing, that there are other churches and other places that are preaching the same truths that we preach here. And it may be that in some of the foreign countries, there are stronger churches than actually find in the United States today. And that's because, as I said, there's all this bad theology that goes on here, and we're sending it out to the rest of the world. But there are still some strong churches in other places of the world. So in our study of the church, we have seen that there are churches throughout history that are like Berean Baptist Church. There are churches that are like the Metropolitan Bible Baptist Church in the Philippines that Dr. Benny Abante pastors. And uh, in the very beginning, churches went out across, or the gospel went out across uh, Africa and Asia and Europe. And in more modern times, of course, it reached into America and then to nations like the Philippines. And if you're looking at this whole thing correctly, what you should see is that we are successors to these churches that we've been talking about. That if Christ should delay his coming for another 1,000 years, there will be some preacher in some place that will do a series on church history, and he'll go back into the archives of all the recorded materials, and he will find the Berean Baptist Church in 2014, and he will say what I have said, that there are churches a thousand years ago that were believing the very same things that we believe. 
And that statement would be true, and we know it will be true, if Christ delays his coming, he has this promise that's in place that the church will continue uninterrupted, and it will still be preaching the same gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached. So I think that's fascinating that if we look at it that way, we are another link in that long line of New Testament churches and we're just like those groups that came before us that we've been studying. Uh, we're right in the line with the Montanists and Ovations, the Waldenses, and others that preach the truth. And so I'm happy to be a part of that history. And someday somebody will hear these messages and they will say, there was a church in 2014 that was not apostate. They preached the same gospel as the apostles. And so by our example, you... In this church, by our example, some future church will find their confidence in Christ's promise that he will preserve his church until he comes again. Now, as we move into our study tonight, we're ready to go to the next period of church history. And we're getting closer and closer to more modern times. And so the records are better. Uh, the disputes about doctrine are much better documented than what we have from ancient history. And we know what these next people, uh, in the people in this next period believe because of one huge issue, and that was the printing press. The printing press was invented in the middle of the 15th century, and there was just at that time an explosion of religious books and pamphlets. Preachers were eager to write I mean, it's almost like all of the learning that they had for all these years was pent up inside of them. And what they couldn't wait to do was just get that word out to as many people as they could. And that's actually what caused Luther's message to saturate Europe uh, was because of the printing press. He was able to get out the materials that he had written and the doctrines that he was teaching to people all across Europe at that time rather than having to stop and slowly copy everything by hand. The printing press was there. So we know what these people believed and we know what they were arguing about. And especially at the time when the Puritans came along, there was just this great outpouring and flurry of books and commentaries that we're fortunate to still have many of those that are in print today. So the printing press was right up next to the beginning of this next age, and that is the fifth period of the church, which is known as the age of the Renaissance and the Reformation. The Renaissance and the Reformation. Renaissance is a word that means rebirth. And this really was a rebirth of culture, especially in the Western world. Now, it's no mystery, of course, why it's called the Renaissance, because you remember that the last period was known as the Middle Ages, but another name for it was the Dark Ages. The world was in darkness culturally and politically and socially, and especially, of course, the world was in darkness religiously. And what the Roman Catholic Church had done was to plunge the world into that darkness actually as a matter of their policy. What they wanted to do was to keep people from any kind of cultural advancement because that made it easier for them to control people. Now, Rome, what Rome didn't want was free thinkers because as soon as people, masses began to read and were educated, then they would find out that they had for years and years and years been bamboozled by Catholicism. And so they would soon discover that the Roman church and the pope 
was nothing like New Testament Christianity. And so when that explosion of literature happened, there were men like Luther and Calvin and the other reformers that took advantage of all that, took advantage of the printing press, and they put the literature out there. And what that did was to uh, begin to loosen this noose that the Roman Catholic Church held tight around the necks of anyone who disagreed. Now remember, last week we talked about Wycliffe, and Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, and he put it into the hands of the common people. Now, for Wycliffe, the printing press wasn't yet invented, but as soon as it was, the very first thing that was printed with movable type was the Gutenberg Bible, and that was in 1455. Now, later, Wycliffe's translation was printed, and that was circulated widely in England. And so there was this rebirth of culture that actually began in Italy about 1350, and then that started to spread throughout Europe. In 1453, Constantinople fell to the Turks, and that was another springboard for this great period of enlightenment. Now, let me explain to you why that's true and what happened. Constantinople, if you remember, was the capital of the eastern bloc of the old Roman Empire, and the branch of Catholicism that ruled that particular part of the world was the Eastern Orthodox Church. And Western Europe was locked down by Roman Catholicism. And as I said, they were, the West was in the darkness and they were very backward uh, compared to the Eastern Bloc. Now, I talked about that a few weeks ago. The reverse, of course, is true today, where areas that are ruled by Islam we consider to be mostly backward and culturally, culturally backward, at least, and the West is more culturally advanced. Well, the opposite was true at that time. It was the West that was in the dark, and the East were the ones that were educated. And so what happened then when Constantinople fell, uh, it fell to Islam and to the Turks, and then there was just this flood of scholars that came into the West and brought with them Greek and... Hebrew manuscripts and great literary works and they began to encourage people to become educated and to learn and to uh, get into all these these great things of literature and that started to wake people up and especially what it did uh, they brought with them the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible and of course studying the Bible became a very important thing at that time the Bible was being translated into into the language of the people now and so they have these Greek and these Hebrew manuscripts and they began to study those and those just happened to be the best preserved manuscripts of all the ones of all the families of manuscripts that there are those were the Byzantine text and it was from those texts that uh, we actually got the translation of the King James Bible And the King James Bible turns out to be a major, major piece of this whole thing that took place uh, uh, in that uh, particular time about the reawakening of people to religion and understanding of the Word of God. And so that was a very important time in the history of the church. So what do you think happened when, when all of this learning and people could start reading the Bible? Well, the Roman Catholic Church was exposed to the light of Scripture... Uh, the printing press had really put things out there, and now the world was given light. A great spiritual light began to shine in, and that opened the eyes of the people. And, of course, as I said, the Scripture has a lot to do with that. That woke people up, and it brought them out of the dark ages from that time of uh, where they were forcefully blindfolded by Catholicism. Then another important factor was the... 100 years war 
between England and France that took place between 1353 and 1453. And it was during that time that there was a spirit of nationalism that arose. Now, you and I are used to the idea of patriotism. Brian singing, uh, was America the Beautiful Tonight, and as well as Kate Smith, by the way. And so he did a great job of singing America the Beautiful, and we heard some patriotic songs that the ladies played today. So we're, we're used to the patriotism thing. We have these special days and so forth, and we celebrate our country. But back in those times... Uh, in that, in these, in these centuries that we're talking about, there wasn't this spirit, spirit of nationalism and patriotism. But after the 100 Years' War, this, this spirit of nationalism began to grow, and as it was growing, then that started to decrease the power or the, the influence that the Roman Catholic Church had over governments. Now, they still had a lot, and there was a long way to go, but nationalism and patriotism weakened Catholicism. And then also contributing to that was what happened to Wycliffe and Huss. Now they, if you remember from last week, they were Roman priests, Roman Catholic priests, and they were fed up with the hypocrisy and the immorality of the Roman Catholic Church. And what God was doing, he was working in the hearts of those men, and so there began to be a push within the Roman Catholic Church to reform. And so you have this religious push, and you have a cultural change, you have academic agitation, and all of those things were building up, and all of it was ready to explode. And on the religious side, it actually did explode when Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. And so the movement for reform began in the Catholic Church, and as it did, that had a profound effect upon Baptist churches. Because what the reformers did was they emphasized some of the same doctrines that Baptists have been preaching for centuries. And so by the providence of God, Baptist soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, that became the position of the reformers, justification by faith alone and so on. But the reformers started out by trying to do this work from within the framework of Catholicism. And that's why they're called reformers. They're not called innovators. They were reformers. They're trying to do it all within the Roman Catholic Church. And the reformers that did this were priests, just like Wycliffe and just like Huss. And they were causing quite a stir in the Roman Catholic Church. And their message in the beginning was just like Wycliffe and Huss. It was directed towards the corruption of the priesthood. Wycliffe started by attacking the immorality of priests, and then when the Bible was translated into English, things just started to escalate. Because buoyed by that knowledge of Scripture, soon they were getting to more into more and more doctrinal questions. And so there was hardly any New Testament doctrine that had been left unscathed by the perversion of Catholicism. And so Wycliffe became a pre-Reformation reformer, and he kicked all of that off, and that brought us into the time, the world into the time of the Reformation. So there was this smoke of change that was in the air. And that's not a reference to smoke and mirrors, but this was a smoke of change that was in the air, and the atmosphere was simply thick with this. This was a boiling, tumultuous time religiously in the world. Now let me refresh you just a little bit on this, is that the reformers started out doing just what their name indicates. 
They weren't interested in starting new churches. What they were trying to do was to clean up the current system. But there's a problem with that. And that is that the doctrinal issues were so extensive that the change was trying, like trying to make a Rolls Royce out of a Pinto. I mean, overhauling the engine was not going to work. And so you just think about the things that have to be changed. The difference between what the Reformers taught and the Roman Catholic Church taught. And to look at that difference, we have to look at the five solas that came out of the Reformation. Now, I've taught you on this before, and, and uh, maybe you remember what I'm going to say here, but we'll go through this again. That sola is Latin, that means soul, S-O-L-E. The word means only, it means singular, it means alone. And so there were five onlys of the Reformation that underlied the entire movement. Now, all of these are Latin terms. So the five solas of the Reformation. The first one is sola scriptura, and that means scripture alone. That the scriptures are the highest authority. Or really we should say that the scriptures are the only authority. That there is no other place that we go for doctrine. That the Bible itself is sufficient for everything that we need to know about life and godliness. If you've been in the fundamentals class, you know that we have a memory verse for that. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Remember the memory verse? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable and so on. So there, uh, the, the sola scriptura taught that the word of God is the only authority. The second of the solas is sole fide, which means faith alone. That we are justified by faith as the instrumental cause of salvation. That faith itself doesn't save us, but faith is the medium by which the meritorious cause of salvation is appropriated. That salvation is not our own work, but it is the work of Christ and what he did on the cross and through and, and his perfect life that he lived, the perfect obedience that he gave on the earth. Those things are imputed to us as a means of our justification. The third sola is sola gratia, which means grace alone. Now, the Reformers were brought back to this biblical position that salvation is by the free grace of God. And grace is unmerited favor. It's the grace of God that rules our salvation. It's something that God does himself. That there aren't any conditions that cause God to save anyone. But the choice is a free choice that's made in God. And of course those beliefs led into what we call the doctrines of grace in which God is totally responsible and God has a sovereign plan by which salvation is brought to us. And so the relationship that we have with God stands only by grace. That God graciously allowed this transaction of salvation and he's the one that puts it all into place. Now fourthly, the fourth sola is solus Christus, which means Christ alone. That Christ alone is the Savior, that we owe allegiance to no one but him. And there is no priest that stands between us and God. There is only one mediator between us and God, and that is Jesus Christ. And so Mary is not a mediator. The saints are not a mediator. No one is a mediator between us and God but Jesus. Now the fifth of these is soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. The glory of our salvation goes to God alone. Salvation was accomplished 
by God through the work of Christ on the cross. And so any improvement that's in man is made possible only by the work of God. And so since only the work of God can do it, then only God should receive the glory for it. Now, those five solas represent a complete upheaval of the Roman Catholic system. What they do is they destroy Catholicism from the top to the bottom so there's nothing left of it. And so if you believe these things, if you hold to the five solas, then there's no way that you're going to be able to retrofit Catholicism into that system. You can't fit Catholicism into the system. It's complete opposite of what Catholicism is. Now, what we're going to do here in the next few minutes is to take a look at each of these again and see why that Catholicism could never come to a meeting of the minds with the Reformers. And so in order to keep these doctrines, what the Reformers had to eventually do was to abandon Catholicism altogether, and they ended up starting their own churches. So we start with this again, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, or scripture alone, destroys the authority for a major part of what Catholicism teaches. Now we can start with their main doctrine. Their cardinal doctrine is the Mass. And the Mass can find no support in the scriptures. In fact, if you know the history of it, the Mass was actually developed over hundreds of years and it came about not because of something that's found in the scriptures, but because there was a council who decreed that it was so. And so that is something that did not come from the word of God. Scripture alone takes away Mariality, Mariolatry, and that is another major, major part of Catholicism. Pope John Paul II was a leading heretic on this issue, and he was called the Pope of Mary, because rather than dedicating himself to the exaltation of Christ, he gave himself to Mary, and he made Mary the focus of his ministry. Scripture alone takes away the hierarchy of Catholicism. It changes the whole government of their church, and it takes away the authority of the priest. So anything that's relied upon because of tradition is completely shot down. And this extends to many, many doctrines. There are so many that you can't hardly talk about them all. You mention almost any practice that goes on in the Roman Catholic Church today, and you can hardly find any scripture for it. Veneration of relics, mystical powers of the scapular, the rosary, worship of idols, the use of smoke of, of incense, conclaves that elect popes, the pope himself as the vicar of Christ, penance and purgatory and prayers for the dead and prayers to the saints. You pick almost any of that or all of those things or pick almost anything else and scripture alone destroys that practice. And then the Roman Catholic Church is exactly backwards on scripture. They say that the church gives authority to Scripture, whereas the Bible teaches that the Scriptures give authority to the church. So in their system, they say that the Bible can be changed, it can be ignored, it can be mutilated, whereas Sola Scriptura says that no one has the authority to change anything. The Scriptures rule. So Rome could never go along with that. That's, that's death to their church and, and to these numerous councils that spent their time redacting the Bible. So everybody in the Roman church would be out of a job if they believed in sola scriptura. Now secondly is sola fide, 
faith only as the means of justification. And what that does, it takes away the Roman Catholic doctrine of merits and indulgences and purgatory and penance and sacraments and a host of other things. So Rome says that we are saved by faith, but not by faith only. And in fact, you might say not by faith hardly in their system. So the way that a person is saved is to earn merits for heaven. And that's the underlying doctrine that actually caused Luther to reject the sale of indulgences. Uh, essentially, indulgences are uh, a forgiveness of sins that are based upon a corresponding good work. Now, what they would do, uh, at first, indulgences were granted on various bases, such as prayers and acts of penance. But the Roman Catholic Church found a way to make money off of that, and so they actually started selling indulgences. And that worsened because added to selling the forgiveness of sins after the sin was committed, they instituted what they thought was a better system, and that was that you could pay for sins up front. You could pay them before, pay them before you committed them, and so that way you could go ahead and commit the sin and you wouldn't have to feel guilty for it. So what they were actually doing was selling insurance policies for sin. So a person could go to the priest and he'd say, well, here's what I want to do. How much is that going to cost me? Well, you and I know that all of us are willing sinners. And so if we can sin without guilt and skate into heaven without the guilt, then we're going to save up for sin. Oh, we'll, get, we'll get a savings account if we have to. And so when that kind of insurance man comes to your door, uh, you, you let him in. Now, I refuse most insurance... They don't hardly do that anymore, sell door to door. But I remember when they did, an insurance man comes knock on your door. He'd say, oh, no, you don't want to talk to an insurance man. And no, this is nothing against anybody that sells insurance, okay? I'm not. Uh, but we would say, oh, no, we don't want to talk to the insurance man. But this guy, he comes, he sells this kind of insurance policy. That's the guy that you not only let in, you invite him over. You make an appointment with him, and you say, come, tell me what you've got. And so the priest comes to you, and he sells you a policy, and he says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And then, you know, Baptists have a version of that too. Uh, you've probably heard the saying, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. And that's just a variation of this theme. I will do what I want to do because I want to do it, and I know that I'll receive forgiveness later. I'm sure that I'm going to get it. And people who think like that had better think twice about whether they really know the Lord. Well, Luther kicked off the Reformation on this very issue. I mean, that's the heart and soul of the 95 Theses. I'll talk about that more next week. But in Luther's day, this practice of selling indulgences got way out of hand. And what the Roman Catholic Church was doing was funding massive building projects with these sales of forgiveness of sins. So if you take away the many things that Roman Catholics say about how you merit heaven, then what you've actually done is you've ruined the financial management system of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this Roman system of faith plus works is also their basis for purgatory. Uh, you can commit too many sins that you can't uh, pay off in this life, and so there's purgatory that you have to go, and there's where you sweat off the, the rest of the time and pay for those sins. And the Roman Catholics make that a universal thing, so that nobody gets to heaven without a little bit or a lot of purgatory. 
And so if all Catholics get purgatory, then you know that there are a lot of good ones along with the bad ones that are there, and all of them need to get out. And so the good news is that they have a system devised by which you can help people get out of purgatory in a variety of ways. One of those ways, of course, is money. So the Vatican put their financial planners on this one, and they they give people an investment strategy for eternity. And what you do is you put the church in your will, and then your family goes on the installment plan for the length of time that you're going to be in purgatory. Well, there's another way that you can lessen your time in purgatory. See, the Roman church is ever-evolving. Times change, and so do they. And so now they've come up with the idea that social media can help you get out of purgatory. That if you follow the Pope on Twitter, that you can get indulgences for purgatory. But you have to be a sincere follower. I mean, you, you, you can't be goofing around with this thing. This is very serious stuff. Now, you might think I'm silly to say this, but if you do, you're sacrilegious because, folks, this is real spiritual stuff that people ought not to make fun of. So let me read to you from a news article. Uh, Here we have a picture of the Pope in case you haven't seen him. Can you give me that back there? Ah, yes, there is our beloved Pope. And uh, this was the picture that was at the head of this article. And the caption underneath this picture said, A court of the Catholic Church led by Pope Francis above warns that the faithful cannot obtain lesser punishment by just chatting online. Now, that's followed by this article. In its latest attempt to keep up with the times, the Vatican has married one of its oldest traditions to the world of social media by offering indulgences to followers of Pope Francis' tweets. The Church's granted indulgences reduce the time Catholics believe they will have to spend in purgatory after they have confessed and been absolved of their sins. The remissions got a bad name in the Middle Ages because unscrupulous churchmen sold them for large sums of money. You know, uh, I'll stop right there. You know who the unscrupulous churchmen are? Oddly enough, the priest and the Pope. The unscrupulous churchmen are the priest and the Pope. Somehow that didn't show up in this article. But now, indulgences are being applied to the 21st century. But a senior Vatican official warned web-surfing Catholics that indulgences still required a dose of old-fashioned faith and that paradise was not just a few mouse clicks away. You can't obtain indulgences like getting a coffee from a vending machine, Archbishop Claudio Maria Celli, head of the Pontifical Council for Social Communication, told the Italian daily Corriere della Sera, indulgences these days are granted to those who carry out certain tasks, such as climbing the sacred steps in Rome, reportedly brought from Pontius Pilate's house after Jesus scaled them before his crucifixion, a feat that earns believers seven years off of purgatory. Keep that in mind. Go to Rome and climb the steps seven years off of purgatory. But attendance at events such as the Catholic World Youth Day, World Youth Day in Rio de Janeiro, a week-long event starting on 22nd July, can also win an indulgence. Mindful of the faithful who cannot afford to fly to Brazil, the Vatican's Sacred Apostolic Penitentiary, a court which handles the forgiveness of sins, has also extended the privilege to those following the rites and pious exercises of the event on television, radio, and through social media. 
That includes following Twitter, said a source at the penitentiary, referring to Pope Francis' Twitter account, which has gathered 7 million followers. But you must be following the events live. It's not as if you can get an indulgence by chatting on the Internet. In its decree, the penitentiary said that getting an indulgence would hinge on the beneficiary having previously confessed and being truly penitent and contrite. Praying while following events in real online would need to be carried out with requisite devotion, it suggested. Apart from the papal Twitter account, the Vatican has launched an online news portal supported by an app, a Facebook page, and it plans to use the online social networking site Pinterest. What really counts is that the tweets the Pope sends from Brazil or the photos of the Catholic World Youth Day that go up on Pinterest produce authentic spiritual fruit in the hearts of everyone, said Shelley. So there you go. You, you've been wasting your time texting and tweeting, and if you'd just been more serious about this, you could have earned credits against time in purgatory. So you don't, don't blame me because I've just told you about this. And so if you suffer more in purgatory than you should, I've already warned you about this, and you don't have anybody to blame but you. Now, what I wish is that when I was preaching the sermon on testing God to the limit, that I would have known about this, because I think I could have helped somebody who was an insincere tweeter. Now, I wish that I was making this stuff up, but this is too bizarre for me to be that creative, folks. And... uh, Grandpa Jones said, truth is stranger than fiction. And when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church, truth is stranger than fiction. Well, going on, we come to the third sola. That is sola gratia, grace alone. And the Roman system is not a gracious system. It's always work, 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 and more work. Work is involved in everything, just like climbing those steps in Rome Uh, to get those indulgences that will help you get out of purgatory. But the Apostle Paul said that grace is no more grace if you put works into it. And so with so much work that's going on, grace means absolutely nothing. Everything in the Roman Catholic Church comes with a price. And they're the ones that put the price tag on it. So Roman Catholics deny sola gratia. They don't believe that regeneration is monergistic. And because they don't, they can slip in baptism and sacri- other types of sacraments uh, so that salvation is dependent upon doing those things or having a priest do them for you. And so somewhere they think that synergism has to be involved in, the, in this because God cannot save anybody without their help. You, you, you must, God must have your help to save you. That's where your works come in. Now, fourthly, solus Christus, Christ alone, there is no such thing in the Roman system as Christ alone. Rome has a sacerdotal system. It's more priest alone than it is Christ alone. There's a whole lot of Mary in there. There's a whole lot of dead saints in there. There's a whole lot of this and a whole lot of that. And it's never Christ alone. Christ alone never saved anybody in that system, which kind of makes you wonder, how did the thief and the cross get through? Because nobody else can be saved by Christ alone. Now what the Pope teaches and the Roman Catholic Church teaches is that the priest is the potentate. That he's the one that has the power to give or to withhold life. And so if he's busy on the day that you need him, then it's going to be a bad day for you. And since it's the church that authorizes the priest, 
and the sacraments, then that makes the church also equal with salvation. Well, you and I know that we don't have anybody but Christ. We go directly to him for our salvation. You can be saved and headed for heaven without a priest within 5,000 miles of where you are. You'll be on a deserted island without a priest, and that's no barrier to you being able to get into heaven. In fact, I would say this, that if it's you and a priest alone on a deserted island, I don't put your chances at too good of getting to heaven. So no one stands in your way of getting to God. There is no man, no priest that can give or prevent a person's salvation. But Rome steps even further into that with their barriers to salvation. They say that Mary is a co-redeemer with Christ. And so if you want to get to heaven, then you better ask Mary because she has influence over Christ. And if you're not on the good side of Mary, you're out of luck. So get on her good side. Worship her. Call her the queen of heaven. But then it doesn't even stop there. It's not just Mary. There are others that you have to know as well. You can speed up the process of obtaining your final salvation by attaching yourself to the cause of some dead saint. And then throw in a pilgrimage or two somewhere, and that'll help you too. Well, you see that all of the things that are talked about here are nonsense. And really, this is more sad than it is funny because there are one and a half billion people worldwide that are snookered by this system. And so we have our smiling, waving Pope in his little beanie cap who's actually cutting the heart and the soul out of people and people are dying and going to hell because of that. Now, the fifth sola also cannot possibly happen under this system. There is no way that soli deo gloria works. Glory to God alone does not work with Catholicism. Now, everything that I've said just shoots that down. The, the Pope exists for his own glory. He usurps the power of Christ. He's worshipped as if he were God. He's still the Pontifex Maximus, like the heathen Roman emperor who claimed that he was deity. The Roman Catholics worship the Pope. They worship Mary. They worship saints. They worship idols. They worship relics. If it moves or doesn't move, they'll worship it as long as there's money involved with it. They worship power. And that's the way it's always been. It's always been about control and power. And so you take away all of that. And when you have these priests like Calvin and Luther who are preaching the soul, something has to go. Solas take away the power of the Roman church. They destroy the power of the pope. They destroy the power of the priest. They end the gravy train of work salvation and the money trails. And I can tell you this, Rome would not stand for it. And you'll notice today that whenever there's talk of evangelicals and Catholics getting together, you never see the Catholics compromising. It's always the evangelicals that give up something when they want to have or want to do anything jointly with Roman Catholics. So they give up the gospel, they give up their soul, they give up everything when they go to be with the Pope. So I can tell you that we won't do anything like that. But we're not going to mix up with that. I don't care what the cause is. If the Roman Catholic Church has anything to do with it, we're not going to have anything to do with it. And I, I don't care if that's giving lost puppy dogs a new home. If the Catholics have anything to do with it, then lost puppy dogs will not get a new home. And I know that somewhere in there that the puppy dogs are going to get skinned one way or the other. 
So all of these solas, these things rise and fall together. You can't take one without taking them all. And so when Rome saw that, they wouldn't budge on that. When a Protestant goes back to Rome, he has to give up all of that because there aren't any compromises. And then let me add to that that the Protestants, when they started out, they didn't start out with some new doctrine that's new to the Baptist. These are things, these solas are things that the Montanists taught, the Novatians and the Donatists and the Paulicians and the Waldenses and the Albigenses and the Lawlers and the Wycliffeites. All of them were teaching these five solas that came about in the Reformation long before the Reformation ever happened. Long before Luther and Calvin ever had their first conflict with Rome, these Baptist people were preaching those very same five things. Now they'd been dying for centuries already for what they believed long before the reformers. And so they were preaching the grace of God, preaching the doctrines of grace. They stood against the priesthood. They had the priesthood of the believer long before Luther and Calvin. And so the reformers weren't saying anything new. And you know what the Baptists were doing? The Baptists were standing back and watching all of that and saying, you finally got it. You finally understand this. You read the Bible and you found out the truth. Well, there's still a problem. We respect the reformers. We stand with them in their soteriology. We stand with them when they stand against Catholicism. But there's still a problem. And that's the reformers were still Catholics. And what they were trying to do was to scrub down a dirty system that was too dirty to be cleaned. And so what happened to them was that some of the filth of Catholicism clung to them. They still had some of that dirt of bad doctrine on them. And so they brought out things like infant baptism. Now, thankfully, not any longer as a means of salvation, but they practiced infant baptism. They still held on to a church-state government. They held on to compulsory church membership. Now, even though they eventually did come out of Rome, they started new churches when they came out, but they brought that dirt of bad doctrine with them. And you know what the problem is? This is the real thing here. The real problem is they started new churches. They started new churches when Christ already had a very old church. A church that was already there in existence. And what God didn't need, God didn't need Presbyterians. And God didn't need Lutherans. And God didn't need Methodists. He didn't need any of that. Because there was a church that was still teaching the doctrines of Christ and of the apostles. And what they should have done was thrown in with that church that was already in existence. And if they'd done that, then we would not have had another persecuting church. And that's what the Protestants were. They were persecutors and they learned that art form from the Catholics. And so the Reformers had no mandate from God to clean up Catholicism. They had no mandate to start a new church. As I said, we love the reformers as long as they hold to the doctrines they receive from Christ. But like our forefathers, what we will not do is we're not going to join up with them either. We're not going to join with Catholics and we're not going to join up with Protestants. Because if we had done that, then there wouldn't be a Baptist church today. We'd gone out of existence. And that's why in Ronard Park there is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when you go to the Philippines, you'll find a church like Benny Abantes, the Metropolitan Bible Baptist Church with 6,000 members. And you find Baptists all over the globe because what we would not do is we would not surrender the truths that we held and we would not surrender the Christ in which we believe. Now, I know that there are some people who say, well, when you preach like that, you're just being too exclusive. 
that you think that only Baptists are Christians. And I have never said that. I've never said that Protestants are not Christians. I think there are many Protestants that are, that are Christians. These ones that be, believe these five solas, they couldn't be anything but a Christian. Uh, certainly, they're Christians. Even some in the Catholic Church are Christians. I don't think very many, at least not those who believe anything like the Roman Catholic doctrine. They're just in the wrong church. And so we're not saying that, that the people who believe these things, if they're not Baptists, that they're not Christians, they are. But the thing that we really need to ask is what is to be gained by joining the wrong church? What can you possibly gain by that? Paul said the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And if you don't have the right church, then you don't have a foundation that's strong enough to stand on. And so we have our Baptists that came through all this period of history holding on to those doctrines of Christ, preaching these doctrines that we've talked about tonight, and still Baptist churches are holding on to that today. And so there's a Baptist church that is still thriving. We know what they believed then, we know what we believe now, and we know that we are equal in those beliefs. Now next time, we're going to come back to this, and I'm going to expand on it some. And we're going to look at the Reformation and Baptists during the Reformation. And what happens, what comes out of that is eventually Baptists made it to America. And that's where we're headed. How did we get here? How, how did the Berean Baptist Church get here? How did it go from there to here? And then finally, from those churches that began in America to where we are right now. And that's where the study's going, Baptist in America. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time together tonight. We thank you for the study of history. We thank you, Lord, that we do find churches in history that have held to the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ, and those truths have been brought down through a succession of churches, and we still have that truth today. We thank you, Lord, for these five solas that we've talked about, the onlys, and really, these are not things that came out of the Reformation. They were emphasized then, but they didn't come out of the Reformation. They came out of the scriptures, and they came from uh, a church that was taught by Jesus and the apostles. And Lord, help us to hold on to all five of those, scripture alone and Christ alone. And Lord, just all of these solas, help us to stick to that as long as we have life to live and breath to breathe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.